for I felt sure of all of you, and that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrows. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you, and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. We're in the third week of our series through 2 Corinthians, Paul's letter to uh, church in Corinth and Acacia. Um, And I just want to invite you to pray with me before. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief uh, this morning. Help our fatigue. Help our tiredness. Help our weariness. um, Help our... our, um, our wanting, Father. Uh, You are our shepherd. We know that we shall not want, and yet we find ourselves by Wednesday wanting. Lord, I ask that you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would draw us into your presence, one God, eternally triune, and that you would help us, Father, to truly find love in uh, the community that you create by your gospel. So we ask that you would help us, that you would lead us to find that, even this morning, as we drift. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, now I know not everybody uses Instagram, or even knows what Instagram is. Um, so Instagram, let me just say, is it's an online uh, social media platform for people to share pictures with others. And uh, so if you're eating food, you snap a picture of that, you put some hashtags in it and all that, and a bunch of people get to see whatever meal you're eating. Um, or if you're going through, uh, you know, uh, something else. Um, one of the things that Instagram kind of has done so well, um, at least in some ways, um, is, is letting people sort of share their messes with others. And so if you have like a toddler who just smeared you know, red sauce all over their face or threw something across the kitchen, white kitchen floor, and it's stained now. You can share that with other people, and I'm sure that somebody is going to resonate somewhere on the planet uh, with that. And, uh, or if you've gone through a difficult time, uh, you can share about that to a lot of people, and people do resonate on some level. Or you lose a loved one, and you share a picture, um, a memory, and again, some other people can, can kind of relate. But, but like with all social media... As authentic as we try to be, um, there's a hashtag, it's live authentic, you know, and, and, but a lot of the pictures look the same. So it's like, how authentic is it really? How original is it really? It's that whole debate. Um, as authentic as we try to be, it's easy for us to still feel like we're missing something, we're lacking in something, we're wanting. And 
You know, we're, um, we're more connected than ever before in a digital age. Want to reach me? You can email, text me, WhatsApp me, FaceTime, call, message, Google Hangout, Google Chat. I mean, the list goes on and on, right? Uh, and yet, we're more alone than ever. Uh, one sociologist has helpfully put it, we are alone together. And recently over in the UK, uh, they have appointed a minister of loneliness to um, sort of address the epidemic of loneliness in, um, in an entire country. Um, and so people all around the world are feeling the effects of superficial, inauthentic community. Uh, the internet's nice, but real people right next to us in our lives is better for our bodies and our souls. And so we're only just realizing this, though, in an advanced society, in um, a secularized um, uh, world. Um, and, 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 and this is something that the Bible has long held out for us as what we are in need of most. That every single one of us, no matter you know, where we are on the charts, no matter what we test or score in the Myers-Briggs, if we're extroverted, introverted, we reject all those categories. We're an ambivert. Uh, whatever we are, you know, um, you take Enneagram or whatever, you know, all these different tests and, and all that, um, no matter who we are at, at the most basic level, um, whether we're, we're the most social person we've ever met or the least social person we've ever met, at the end of the day, every single one of us is hardwired for community. We were made for communion, for fellowship with God and with people. And we long for connection. We long to, to be known and to know, or to know and to be known. And so this morning, from, from God's word, from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, um, God wants us to live in and love authentic community. That's what his word is, is, is conveying to us this morning. So today I want us to get a better idea of what that looks like and and how we can find this for ourselves. Um, you know, so what is authentic living and what is authentic loving? What does that even look like? And so I want to answer those questions by looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 11. So uh, let's, let's look at this first uh, concept of authentic living. So, so what does authentic living look like? Um, I think from what we see with Paul here, uh, authentic Community or living starts with clear and um, careful communication with others. And um, to sort of reflect on this for a second, uh, it, it doesn't take very long for a group of people, um, even people who are absolutely like-minded, have the same goals, a lot of common interests, it doesn't take very long, does it, for people to find some level of disagreement and that like, friction to start to happen, right? Um, conflict happens. You can scale it down to the average household in America where the nuclear family becomes nuclear. You know what I'm talking about? Um, uh, bickering is common, or, or we can blow it up to the corporate boardroom. Uh, conflict is everywhere. I mean, it's in the church, too. Uh, this past week, I um, joined about uh, 1,200 or so other pastors and elders of our uh, denomination, the PCA, at our uh, annual General Assembly. And a room full of people, and you can imagine how 
interesting those dynamics get with a lot of people in one room who like to make a lot of decisions and have lots of opinions of how things should be done. Um, but we discussed a lot of things that affect our whole church, and, and, and when you get that many leaders in one room, you can guess that there's a lot of conflict. But the start of the meeting was actually really peaceful. Um, we elected our first African-American moderator in our assembly ever in the history of our denomination, which is pretty amazing, Ir Reverend Irwin Ince. Um, and his vote was unanimous, so no, no opposed, no abstains, all in favor. It was met with a resounding aye and thunderous applause, a lot of people standing. And it was amazing. I mean, I've never seen all of these southern and northern and eastern and western Presbyterians agreeing about one thing. <laughs> oh my goodness. No objections, really? No minority report? No nothing? It was amazing. And then, um, so we, we all agreed. And then right before the official business began, uh, we have these voting devices that are clickers. You know, it's how else do you get a bunch of people to vote on something, right? So we have these little clickers. Hey, technology helping us. And we try to vote. And about like half the room, their clicker is broken and doesn't work. <laughs> so that, all that peace turned into war. <laughs> it was every man for himself running up trying to get the clicker to work so I can get my vote in for my church and my Presbyterian, blah, blah, blah. You know? It's just funny. Um, it all worked out in the end, though. So, uh, and, and it was resolved. Um, authentic living requires careful communication, but conflict's inevitable. And so in this letter, what... That's what Paul's addressing here. He's clearly communicating with this church to tell of his intentions, of his motives, to open up his heart with them. And so read along with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. He says this, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you, verse 2. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I've pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. In verse 4. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Man, that's some authenticity. I mean, Paul's being real here. Um, someone had, as I mentioned last week, someone had accused Paul um, uh, and sort of mis mistreated him during a past visit. And instead of coming back as he said he would, Paul writes them a painful letter. And the response of this church, it was very painful for them to hear his words to them. They were sharp. It was a rebuke. And so he's writing now to clarify, to say it wasn't to cause them pain, but he wrote them to let them know that he cares so deeply for them, that he did it in love. And we see here authentic leadership is not authoritarian for its own sake, um, but it's a servant leadership that focus on the need, it focuses on the needs of others. It doesn't exploit or self-exalt. It seeks to protect and to edify and care for God's people. You could describe it as tender love or, or tough love. But it, you know, it has a level of... It's gentle but firm. Like a good father. But look at how, how transparent he is here in, in verses 1 through 4. Um, verse 4 specifically, uh, he, he, we could describe this experience in the words that it, that it was, it was gut-wrenching. Um, it was heartbreaking, and it brought him, as he says, a flood of tears. 
Um, our translation, it says affliction. I notice that word in the ESV. Uh, but he's describing a time of great distress, uh, of much anxiety, uh, of much agony. Excuse me. And then we see this word anguish, and that refers to a person experiencing high levels of anxiety, distress, and dismay. And then the last thing he says, he mentions, with many tears. That's just to, 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 to share, to openly say, as I was penning this letter to you, I was crying. <laughs> I mean, it pained me to do this. I mean, can't you look back on different conflicts that you've had to deal with in your life, whether in the workplace or in home or just living in community with other people or in the church? And this kind of captures that, doesn't it? I mean, sometimes it's, it's personally exhausting and taxing and draining to have to address conflict. And sometimes it really hurts to live in authentic community. And I think what makes it so hard uh, today for, for us to live in this authentic way is that we're surrounded by what makes us comfortable. And a, a, a lot of what we have around us is fake, to put it bluntly. It's, uh, it's faux. You know, it's inauthentic. It's not authentic. So let's think about this for a second. So a lot of the, the best movies, you know, today, the highest gross income, you know, charted uh, movies, they're done on a fake screen. You know, the big green screen or blue screen, uh, whatever color it is now, I don't know. I can't keep up with these things. Somebody can point it out. Um, but, you know, it's, it's all done, and, and it's all done in one room. It's all CGI and special effects and, you know, teams of people, you know, making it all happen, but it's really just actors in one place for the most part. Um, there's a cell phone tower at a, a place I had previously worked at, and uh, <laughs> uh, there's, a, there's a flagpole, um, and it was a flagpole, at least in function, but really its real function was not a flagpole, it was property of Verizon Wireless. It was a cell phone tower. You know, it's like, which is it? I don't know. Um, and so, I, I mean, we carry all these, all these ideas of, you know, this, this kind of fakeness into our own relationships. And so in relationships, too, we have this. Um, and we deceive ourselves into thinking that, that happiness and, and perfect couples, you know, Instagram-worthy pictures and perfect marriages and, and perfect family life and that perfect job that I'm constantly searching for, that, that all of that is without conflict. Reality check, though. Problems abound because sinful people abound everywhere. You and I are both victims and we're villains in creating conflict around us. We're like walking hand grenades, ready to blow up in the presence of one another. And so here, Paul is sharing with us an authentic life. Authentic living needs a kind of trust and relationship. Paul's not trying to coerce them or control them. He wants for them to experience true joy in Christ. And his authentic leadership style is to build authentic living in them by modeling transparency for them and clearly communicating to them. And the whole goal of that is for them to be right with God and then right with Paul and certainly right with one another. So that's some of the context for this. And if you've ever experienced conflict before, then you know that the process itself can be very difficult, right? It's not easy for us to confront 
an issue. Maybe we're someone who likes to avoid confrontation. We don't like confrontation. Um, so maybe for, as an example here, say that uh, there are two women who have a disagreement. And so through verbal and nonverbal communication, uh, the conflict, it escalates. Things kind of get out of hand. And, and, and what, what these two women do is instead of talking to each other, they avoid each other for a while, let it maybe simmer down just a bit. Um, and then they finally run into each other and, and have to chat. And instead of talking through the list of wrongs, being transparent like Paul was here, they just say, I'm sorry to each other and kind of move along. And they move on, but they both still hold on to the unresolved conflict. And they carry that with them into future places. Spread it. I think that we live in a, a culture that doesn't know how to even apologize. Uh, to own up to wrongdoing, certainly. Uh, we don't know how to do that very well. Um, so an airline can, you know, kick off a family off a plane who paid for their seats and not really know how to apologize for it and not really have to, and it's okay. Um, so many examples. I don't want to spend more time on that. But what we find before us today is the opposite of avoidance and the opposite of denial. And authentic living, it leads us to authentic loving. Um, and so I want us to consider that right now. Um, what is authentic loving? God does not want you to avoid conflict. He wants each of us to confront it, communicate about it, and confess it. And then only then could we and could others experience true comfort. So look with me at verse 5. We see, Now if anyone's caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too, too severely, to all of you. Verse 6. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive him and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Verse 8. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Um, so to just outline and describe what's going on here, there are a number of things that I want to point out. Um, first, from verse 5, we see that this specific sin, whatever it was specifically, we're, we're not sure, um, whatever was going on against the Apostle Paul, it was against him. So last week we were saying that this person, it seems like he, he roused a lot of division and was... Um, accusing Paul of, of many things to get a minority to oppose him. And Paul says here, though, that this sin is not just a dispute between him and this other person in the church, but it's, it's a dispute that affects the entire congregation, the whole community. It's caused pain, as he says, to all of you, to everyone. We're interconnected. And second, I want to notice in verses 6 through 8, he's talking about this idea of punishment by the majority. What is Paul talking about? Um, this punishment by, by the majority. What is that? It, it's a kind of church discipline of the person. It seems that as a result of his painful letter, difficult words, the church responded appropriately by rebuking this person who started a community-wide problem. Um, and just really quick, if you're not familiar with this idea of church discipline, um, I know it, it can sound awful in so many ways. <laughs> it's like, what are you talking about? Church discipline? 
Um, I, I remember when I first heard about it, it, it was super scary. And um, I think I probably got all red-necked and red-faced. And I was like, just what is this? It sounds suffocating, it's unloving, and it reeks of uh, authoritarianism to me. Um, and and discip discipline can certainly turn into any number and all of those things when done for the wrong reasons and in the wrong ways. Um, but that's an abuse of authority, not a right use. And so when done right, for the right reasons, in the right ways, it's, it's actually a healthy way of living before God in a community with other people. It's actually how we want to live. And um, just to offer an example, because I, I think everyone's here with me on this one, okay? So June, it's, it's June right now. Am I correct? We're still in June? Everybody's awake? Cool. Um, so we're in the month of June, and what does June start? It's the beginning of summer, yeah, but what happens in June? Kids fighting, okay, come on. I think people get married a lot, right? From June to September is the biggest wedding, you know, it's wedding season, it's open. Um, and, and people um, gather to support the happy couple and participate in a ceremony and a reception, right? Ever been to a wedding before? Is that what happens? I think so. Yeah, so, so in those events, though, um, for a brief time, like a weekend or a week or a day, depends on how long it is, a community is formed. And, and pretty much at every single wedding, at some point, there's a moment when people have a time to object, if it's a more traditional wedding, um, or some word, words are said that sound like vows to support and love and, you know, be around the, the, the happy couple. Okay, if none of that's even done and they've totally gone away with all that stuff and buried it, fine. Uh, the presence of having groomsmen and bridesmaids, right? That itself signifies this idea of support of some kind of accountability structure there. That when you ask somebody to join your wedding party, you're, you're essentially asking them to, you know, one, support your marriage, and two, help you maintain your commitment, right? That's generally, everybody agree with that? All right. So you don't even realize it, but we practice a kind of discipline in the formation of like a wedding community. Um, healthy communities have some kind of accountability structure. That's my point here. Uh, we want it in our government with checks and balances, certainly. We want it in our budgets and our business to avoid corruption and scandal. So why wouldn't we want it to some measure in the church? Um, that's what discipline really is. It's a way to provide accountability to church leaders and, and people in the church to prevent um, harm and to protect the community as a whole in the name of Christ. And so don't let the word, the idea, the concept, church discipline, scare you or intimidate you. Um, it's not a bad thing. And I say that because look at how Paul summarizes his motive here. Um, verse eight, uh, 7 and 8 specifically. He doesn't stop at punishment, so it's not punitive, the motive. And look, it, this is a person who's personally attacked Paul's leadership style, his whole ministry, because he was the church planner of this church, and his person. Attacked Paul's person. And yet Paul says... Um, to this person who's trying to break apart a church family, Paul says this. He says, enough. Instead of further punishing him, verse 7, he outlines the purpose of discipline, saying these words. He says, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. In verse 8, so I beg you to reaffirm your love of him, for him. Now, I don't know about you, but when somebody tries to harm my family 
or my church family, you better hide your kids and hide your wife. Because I'm coming after you. Steve's like, yeah. <laughs> um, that's my first reaction anyways. Um, not, my, my default mode is kind of you know, vengeance and to kind of take you down. That's my first reaction. It's not the right reaction, though. Um, thankfully, by God's grace, the gospel reminds me of the kind of motive that we can't have apart from the love of God in Christ for us. As Paul later would put it in Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Two verses later, he goes on and he says, even while, while we were enemies of God, not friends, enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, Romans 5.10. And the gospel completely changes the way we deal with and treat others who have wronged us, sinned against us, and hurt us. We forgive. We have the capacity to forgive against the worst kind of offense because God in Christ forgave me, us, you. Of our worst offenses. Um, I want to say this really quickly and to be very clear. The, the discipline that Paul is outlining in this um, is not echoing back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 with the case of the, the man who had his father's wife, um, just to be clear. A lot of older interpretations tended to uh, go that way, and so this was sort of a restoration of the, of the discipline that happened in 1 Corinthians 5. Um, but a lot of modern, modern commentators have pointed out um, since the existence of, even by looking at chapter 2, um, we see that there was a previous letter, and remember last week I said that there were four letters of Corinth. Anybody remember that? And I said I was going to explain that at some future point. That's not today. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Maybe I'll write a blog post on it or something like that, and just, you know, we'll deal with it later. Um, but this is a different issue. So this is not a Me Too moment. It's not a case of sexual abuse or mistreatment of women. It's not a physical or spiritual or psychological abuse case. And so, by the way, if you're ever put into something that fits that description, go report it to the authorities immediately. <laughs> That's criminal activity. Um, any counselor, any pastor, any lawyer, any professional, whatever, everybody will point you and actually maybe report it themselves to the authorities. That's what the action that we should take for those. So, just, just saying that. Um, what the Apostle Paul is dealing with here is a person who is disciplined by the church because they're stirring up division causing strife, spreading rumors and lies. It's in the, in the category of gossip and slander. And this person's responsible for attacking Paul, and last week we said accusing him of waffling. Um, and after this person demonstrated some measure of true repentance for his actions, after this person was rebuked by the church and rightly so repented, had the response of true repentance, that's when Paul comes in and says, Forgive this brother. Restore this brother to fellowship. Let, lest he be swallowed up by his shame and guilt. And the word translated forgive in 2 Corinthians 2.7, it's kerizomai. Uh, it means to give freely. Later on in this, in this uh, letter, Paul will use this same word when he asks the church to give freely for the collection in Jerusalem for the poor. So the basis of forgiveness is the gospel of Jesus. The gospel says that you are authentically known by God 
and yet you're still authentically loved by him in Christ. God knows absolutely everything about you, your, your darkest sins, your darkest secret that you've kept in the closet or, or stored away somewhere that you don't want anybody to know. But he loves you anyway in Christ. And so the reason that God can say that of you is that he sent his son to die for you, to be buried for you, to rise for you. It's all because of Jesus that God can look upon you, not in your terrible mess, but in your worthiness in Christ alone. Not as rejected, but as accepted. And so the gospel of God's forgiveness in Jesus is what creates the kind of community of authenticity that we all hunger for and want, even if we don't even know it. And the gospel establishes authentic living and, 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 and creates authentic loving with God and one another. And so Paul concludes, verse 9, This is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you're obedient in everything. Verse 10, Anyone you, whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I've forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. We are not, we're not ignorant of his designs. I think the hardest part of church discipline is, is not practicing or exercising it. That part's straightforward. The hardest part of church discipline is extending forgiveness to the person who has seriously and egregiously wronged you and sought to harm you. That is incredibly difficult. Only the gospel can bring any of us to that place of freely giving and extending grace to somebody who does not deserve it. Um, and so what Paul's saying here is that whenever this happens, whenever we extend forgiveness to someone who doesn't, doesn't deserve it, like in the Gospels when Jesus is saying to Peter, uh, and Peter's asking the question, uh, how many times must I forgive someone who sins against me? You know, and thinking, oh, maybe like once or twice, and then at that point I'm going to call it quits and not forgive this brother anymore, because who would do that? Nope. Jesus says what? Seventy times? Anybody know 70 times 7, meaning like you could just keep repeatedly forgiving this brother even though it doesn't make much sense. <laughs> like, what? I have to, I have to forgive him? And, and, and Paul's saying here, whenever this happens, we actually thwart the plans of Satan who's out to destroy community and rip it apart, that community that we already have through faith in Christ. And so forgiveness, it actually frustrates the schemes of the devil Forgiveness thwarts temptation, and it disrupts division. So he says, we're not ignorant of his designs. We know what he's up to. And probably one of the greatest examples in our own time of seeing the devil get super frustrated, it happened a few years ago in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, 2015, after the, uh, the shooting uh, that happened during a routine prayer meeting at Mother Emanuel AME Church in, Char in Charlottesville. Uh, Char Charleston, I'm sorry, not Charlottesville. Excuse me. Charleston. Uh, nine people were murdered uh, when Dylan Roof opened fire. Uh, Roof hoped to reignite a race war in the South 
by his actions, and before a watching world and a scheming devil. Do you remember what happened? Do you remember what these brothers and sisters did? They taught all of us something biblical and something that only the gospel can bring us to do. And that something is this. They, they forgave him for his sins against all of them. The family members, the friends, the congregants of those who were murdered had the opportunity to respond in rage, in hate, in great animosity, and anger. And yet they spoke words of mercy instead. Nadine Collier lost her mother that day. And in anguish and grief, of course, human emotions, through a veil of tears, like Paul writing this letter to the Corinthians, she told the murderer these words. She said, You took something very precious away from me. I will never get to talk to her ever again. I'll never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you and God have mercy on your soul. And in order to forgive others like this, we need to know that we have been forgiven by God in Christ. For Polly Shepard and Felicia Sanders, two survivors of the Charleston massacre, still rings true. Years later, they've lost loved ones, and yet they stand by their words of grace and forgiveness that day. They continue to extend forgiveness to a murderer, hoping that he will find grace and the world will learn from their example of the grace and peace that we have in Jesus Christ. Of course, if we look at our own goodness, our own kindness, to give freely, to extend forgiveness, we will clench our fists, we will clutch our hands, our open hands will be closed. And we'll tire out, because injustice doesn't sit well with us apart from looking at the cross of Jesus, does it? Only in Jesus, the world's injustices meet justice. And so that's the kind of authentic community that God wants you to live in and wants you to love and wants you to help build and be part of and participate in. Will you be part of that with us as we seek to have an authentic community in Christ and with one another? Let's pray.